Migration Media, this is Migratory Patterns. I'm your host, Mike Shaw. I'm trying something new this week. So far in this series, I've been focused on people who are living the migration experience in the same place that I am, Beijing. This has been for mostly for a very practical reason. It's where I live, and it's where the people I can easily connect to live. Now, this isn't to take anything away from the people I've interviewed so far. In fact, one of the things I've learned as I've been going through these interviews is that everyone is so unique, even in their similarities. And what I mean to say is, we're all living the same experience, life outside our place of origin, but we filter them through the prism of our own personalities and experiences. I can honestly say, as I've gone along on this journey, I've learned something new with each discussion. But there is a wider world out there, and I feel like what's come so far has only whetted my appetite for the possibilities. This week's guest comes to us from Mumbai. Ragini Kashyap's migration story has taken her all around the world, several times over. It's that upbringing, which has exposed her to cultures in the Middle East, India, Canada, and the UK, that has helped her foster her desire to bridge the divides that so often separate people, while her deep love of food has given it form. Ragini's Border Dinner Series is an idea that is as simple as it is powerful. Designed a dinner menu centered around dishes from a region of the world that has been divided by geopolitical forces, most often conflict, then bring folks from both sides of the divide to sit down and revel in the common smells and flavors that continue to bind them, even though walls may have gone up in between them. I really loved this discussion. Regini has some really amazing ideas, her thoughts about her identity and how she fits into the culture she grew up in versus the culture of her parents really speaks to the issues that a lot of TCKs, third culture kids, and even third culture adults uh, deal with as migration becomes more and more common. It was fascinating, really learned a lot. I think you will too. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Rini Kashyap. Ragini Kashyap, welcome to Migratory Patterns. Thanks, Mike. Great to great to be here. Where is home? Home is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Um, <laughs> and I'm comfortable making a home wherever I have to live, and I always feel that home is not exactly where I am because I'm I'm missing out on the idea of home somewhere else at the same time. Um, so I think that's I have to a say you. I have to say you uh, you actually. I was going to give you a little dig on home is everywhere and nowhere. I was be like, that's like an everything is nothing. <laughs> but you actually <laughs> had an explanation for it, which is very admirable. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's it's not something I've thought about for the first time today. So <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. So, um, you know, you and I, we have never met in person, which is very exciting for me. I learned about you uh, from a radio program in the U.S., called uh, PRI's The World. They did a story on you and you did these border dinners and we're going to get into that. But this is exciting for me because when we first spoke, you had this really exciting and interesting story about your journey as someone living outside the place that you hold a passport for, which actually doesn't even mean as much to you as it might to other people. Can you, you know, tell, talk a little bit about where you come from originally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so originally... I'm, I'm Indian. I was um, born in India, but at the time, my parents had already been living in Oman for a couple of years. And so I was in Oman from, you know, when I was two months old. And then I actually spent most of my childhood in Qatar, in Doha. 
and when I was in my late teens, moved to Canada, where I finished high school, did university. I then moved to India for the first time in my in 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 my sort of memorable life to myself. Uh, moved to India for the first time after my undergraduate. Did a couple of years of work here, and then Toronto for a few years working there, and then the UK with frequent stints in um, in different parts of the world because I work in international education for a while and I now find myself back in India as of as of seven or eight months ago and yeah all through all of this I've, I've always kind of wondered where home is um, I remember the first time I moved to India thinking wow everybody around me is Indian I've I've never had this before <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, that being quite quite a unique prospect um, but then also becoming quite used to living in very international cities like a Toronto or a London that don't necessarily have one clear cultural ethnic identity associated with them because they really are these sort of melting pots. And so that's kind of been been my journey over over the last few decades. So where was the first place you chose to live on, you know, you, on your own terms you chose to live? Would that be Canada because you decided to stay for university? Yeah, I guess so. I think growing up in the Middle East, there was, you know, in, in the sort of international school environment, you knew that for your undergraduate, there was sort of an expectation almost that you would be in Canada or the UK or, you know, the US. And so I think when we moved to Canada, it was a fairly natural progression that I would then choose to go to university there. And where did I'm maybe I missed it in the, the, the sequence of story, because honestly, there was a lot of jumping around in there. <laughs> where, yeah. where, where was it you went after Canada? Uh, so Bombay, India. Oh, Bombay. That, so that so was what, what precipitated yeah. that move? Is that like kind of a returning to find your roots type thing? Yes and no, I guess. I guess there's some element of that. I was always quite connected to India, even as I was growing up. Like, you know, we always had family here, so we would visit from Doha twice in a year at least uh so while it was somewhere i'd never lived it wasn't entirely foreign at the same time but obviously visiting somewhere and living somewhere are two very different things uh when i was in my undergrad i was quite sure i was going to go on to law school and then i chanced i was doing an internship with amnesty international and i had to write a primer on the education of gypsy children in romania and in doing so, just out of curiosity, I thought, oh, well, I wonder what the state of education in India is. I'd never been in the system or or I didn't have too much of an idea of, of what it was. And I just put into a Google search education in India quite quite literally. And the first the first the first result that um came up on the screen was for an organization called Teach for India, which is from the same family of organizations as Teach for America or, or all of the other Teach Fours. And I looked at the website and there was something inside me that was just like, yeah, no, this is it. This is, this is it. And so I wrote my LSAT. I did all of the applications for law school, but I simultaneously applied to one single job, which was to join the Teach for India, the second of their cohorts and teach in a slum community here in Bombay for two years. Wow. A slum community in Bombay. Yeah. So I taught primary school, third and fourth grade after going through the training, the same kids. And uh, it's an experience that to a large extent sort of shaped my career and, and choices thereafter. And it was, I always described those two years as my highest highs and my lowest lows. So it was, it was a very 
um, exciting and tumultuous time all at the same time. I can imagine. Wow. My, my wife was a teacher, but she teaches in international schools and to say, and of course you went, went to grew up in international schools in your earlier years. And yeah. that is quite a rarefied and sheltered existence, quite different from the <laughs> slums of Bombay. <laughs> quite. Well, actually, I mean, it, it was one of those things that my parents having grown up in India, when they came to visit the schools, they said very explicitly that, you know, we grew up here, but we've never seen this, this side of the country. Like we've never seen how the other half lives for want of a better phrase um and it was as new to them maybe not quite as new but like it was very new to them as well and you know they had as many questions and they also couldn't make any of the assumptions that i wasn't able to make in in acclimatizing to where i was teaching and over time it became it became home in a different way you know it became home not necessarily through the physicality of the slum community but it became home through human bond, the human connections and the sort of love and responsibility that I felt towards my kids. Yeah. That's like going to war or, you know, going through boot camp or some kind of, you know, <laughs> experience when you, you go through that with people, whatever cohort you're in, that's got to be like bonding for life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it takes, it takes a certain type of person. And so if someone's made the decision and sort of got through the stages of joining the cohort, there's a level of connection that exists before you've even spoken to most people. Now you did that for two years. You said what precipitated your move to your next place? Um, a combination of things uh, at the end of those two years. So it's a two year fellowship. And at the end of it, I, I debated quite strongly saying in Bombay, I was very invested in the education system more widely here. And, you know, I obviously had a very deep emotional connection to the kids that I'd been working with for two years and teaching them and, watching them grow on their journey. Uh, but I decided at that point that I wanted to work at a slightly higher level and move into more the organization of education and creating impact at, at a scale that was above the classroom. Although I strongly believe that the, the deepest impact is in the classroom, but it was more for my own learning. And I had felt it was quite early in my career to pigeonhole myself into something that I hadn't necessarily thought of as my calling uh, before having done the fellowship. So I s decided to move back to Canada at that point, and I worked in nonprofit consulting in Canada for about two years in Toronto. And it was also just an experience to live in live in a Canadian city as an adult, which I hadn't necessarily had the opportunity to do before that um, as a student. And then after that, it was to the UK. And after that, it was to the UK. So I that those five years were quite purposeful in that I knew I wanted to get into working in international education. So I wanted to first work somewhere that would provide me a few higher organizational level insights and skills and just tools really to learn those tools because, you know, I, I was very fresh in the workforce as well. So I still had lots to learn and I'd had a very, a very unique first entry into the workforce. And so I, I maybe had learned certain things very strongly, but had not learned a lot of things people work through, you know, working in an, in a sort of office environment. And so then I did that for two years and wanted to do my master's after that. So finished my two years, told my boss, I'm here to work for you. And I want to work for you for two years because I do want to do my master's after that. And then decided to do my master's, which I did in education management in the UK. And yeah, and then I worked in international education there for a couple of years before 
coming back to Bombay, almost sort of full circle, I, I realized that, okay, I, I really do care about primary education and I, I want to continue working in it, but I feel the most for the education system here. And I know that I can, I know that as an individual, I'm very conscious of the sort of impact I can have in the space in India. And so I, and I, I now found myself back here kind of doing that work once again, not the same job, but I'd say sort of vaguely in the same space. You have geographically gone full circle. <laughs> you have literally gone around the I globe have, several yeah. times. Now, I, this it, it, it's, it can seem a little <laughs> tedious to kind of hopscotch around with you, but you, you have probably the most, I don't want to say unique because a lot of people travel a lot, but you, you have one of the kind of the most uh, deliberate and purposeful and kind of targeted uh, stories. And I know this because we spoke a little bit about this when we first spoke, that this has kind of a a lot of effect on your notions of identity and who you are. And I really want to get into that. Um, the first question I have in that realm is, as you're growing up in the Middle East, and you're making these, you know, mm -hmm. trips back to India every now and again with your parents twice a year, do you have a sense of being Indian when you're growing up in the Middle East or do you have a sense of being kind of an expat or just not of a place? Um, I think that was the question to ask if you had one. Um, I'd say, I'd say both. I think there was an element of me that really wanted to have a strong Indian identity because, you know, you would, eat sort of the food at home. And it was these, it was a sort of overarching culture in the house. I'd say, you know, there is, there is definitely one and it was, it was to a large extent Indian and, you know, specifically North Indian and specifically Punjabi and specifically urban Punjabi. So you can go down as far down, you know, the, uh, the sort of decision tree on, on exactly what that culture was. But when I would come to India, I would be very quickly reminded of the fact that I was not from here and it would be small things like pronouncing things different to the way my cousins would pronounce things or being teased sometimes for um very aggressively trying to read every hindi sign i went past just to see if i could if i could <laughs> do it but then on the other side being in a british school i think there isn't there at least there was in the early nineties, this sort of unspoken hierarchy of, um, of cultures and identities. And so in a British school, it wasn't necessarily cool to be Indian. And so that took, I think, a very big toll on my identity. And I, I really struggled with it. I'd say into my early teens, I think in my later teens, I became quite comfortable with it. But I, I remember being very embarrassed of being Indian for a long time. And, you know, rejecting food, rejecting Indian food and rejecting uh, songs and things, even though I really enjoyed those things, truly, but uh, not wanting to admit to it because there was this common culture that was, I'd say Western, more than one particular kind of, of Western, Western culture that we, that was sort of the norm. And that was the, that was the, that, that's what was accepted. You know, everybody everybody went home and ate sandwiches for every meal and had like various things that just weren't necessarily true to my home, but they had to be, whether they were, or they weren't, they just had to be. Otherwise, like I didn't feel like I fit in. And then I remember through, I think really through like a change in friend group where our friend group became more and more 
ethnically uh, homogenous, I think, as I, as I grew into older grades, where most of my friends were, most of my close friends were either, were Asian of, of some description, whether Indian, Pakistani, Filipino, you know, and, and we all had this sort of dual life that we led, where the person you were at school had a different accent to the person you were at home and had a slightly different outlook to the person you were at home and, you know, was in a school system that was different to the ones that your parents went to school in. Um, not, not to suggest that our parents, you know, were not educated. They obviously are if, if we were expats, but more so the culture of the school system and, and getting a real handle on that culture. And, you know, my parents made a lot of effort in that. I remember they were always sort of part of the PTAs and so on. But yeah, I remember struggling with that component of my identity for a while. And then I think at some point around 14 or 15, I just I just sort of embraced it. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I am Indian and I can be this and I can be that. And then, you know, moving to Canada was the first time I can remember having a real sense of home because I remember I remember this sense of like, oh, this country, this country just sort of accepts me, which is, you know, it's it's true in some ways in that, you know, you you will get you you can have the citizenship and you can live life almost at par with with anyone else and we were going in as educated immigrants as opposed to in a, in a in a moment going immigrating in a moment of strife so i think you know it was a very it was a very easy immigration process as far as as far as immigration goes but at the same time it, i i very strongly remember thinking oh wow this is the first country that's like fully accepted me and i can mold or I can adopt the identity of this country to become my identity, which a few years late down the line, I sort of disproved to myself, but it became a very big part of who, who I That's am. That's a very today, interesting, that is really interesting perspective. It made me think that because you were, you know, your, your formative quote unquote expat experience was in the Middle East. These are cultures where you can never, ever be a part of the culture. You are, by definition, an outsider, and they don't assimilate people. But once you go to Canada, it's the first place where they will assimilate you, or you can be assimilated, or you can, uh, you know, kind of melt yourself. Well, they don't do melting pot. What are, the Melting pot is America, but what do they call themselves in Canada? Cultural mosaic. cultural mosaic. That's right. Yeah, they, they got to be different. So, um, <laughs> which... <laughs> well, actually, it's actually, it's actually, it's different, not just in terminology, it's actually yeah, different in ideology. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it, it is, there is, and this is something I've like spoken to American friends about a lot as well. Um, but, but yeah, but it, again, it isn't, it isn't right. Like, I think everywhere you go, there is a broader culture that you have to, you have to adopt to some degree. And that's, I, I don't think there's, no, anything there's wrong nothing with wrong with that, it. And um, it's kind of yeah. interesting because the, the experience you have as an expat here in China, you know, most expats in China don't hit this wall. But if, if you've been here a long time, especially if you've married a local Chinese person and had children, even there, be, mm -hmm. you know, there is a point where everyone gets the realization, no matter how good your Chinese is, no matter where you live, whether it's a small village somewhere, whether you are there for 50 years, whether you have multiple children, multiple generations, you will never, ever be Chinese. There is, there is no assimilation for you. <laughs> so, but, but Canada is not yeah, that absolutely. place kind of place, you know, you can be part of the, the culture and the society. There, there is a way in for you if you want. So it kind of makes sense that the first place you feel like home is a place where they have that attitude. Mm -hmm. And it was also the first place that I could 
as an adult, I could go back to it any time, right? Like it's it's great to grow up in the Middle East. Um, it was a very privileged childhood, but you're you're always on somebody's like your your father's company sponsorship or you know whatever it is, and so there isn't a sense of permanence attached to that. And then India was not really a place that at that point in my life I felt connected to in a way that I would choose to go back because there wasn't it wasn't really a going back per se. And then Canada was the first place that I could when I left it, I could go back to it. And that option was there to me. And that was very powerful so in my mind. The feeling of being Indian, I remember you said there was, you know, you had trouble with that as a kid and you just alluded to it again. Do you feel Indian now? Yes and no. Um, I think as I've grown, I've uh, I've learned to straddle both cultures in the way that I find the most comfortable. I've sort of cherry picked from Indian, Canadian, and British cultures the things that make up who I am, and I'm to a large extent quite aware of what of what they are and and where my boundaries are. And so I think I can be. Indian enough that if I didn't want you to know I was an expat, I could. It may not come naturally you to fake me, it but till I you could make do it. that. A hundred percent. And I can do the same in Canada. And it's just, you know, my accent changes when I'm speaking in Canada. I speak with a much more Canadian accent when I'm speaking in India. I speak with a more Indian accent. It's just, uh, it's, it, it's just natural. And it's not, you know, it's not a sort of um, catch me if you can lead Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci style operation or anything. It's just what happens when you grow up speaking in different ways um you you just sort of adjust your cultural you chameleon <laughs> yeah this has come I up like before what my, one of my previous guests carrie she grew up in france but her parents were british and cambodian and she so she was not french even though she grew up there she went to school there she doesn't feel french and you know she then came to china to find her roots because her dad was from cambodia but he's ethnically chinese so you go to china and there's this whole mishmash of stuff and she can just kind of weave herself. She can do different accents. She can kind of meld into whatever culture she, she wants to. Right now she's, you know, her partner is a Kiwi and she's looking about moving possibly to New Zealand. So she just has this ability through her upbringing to be able to go into a culture and really absorb and just see all of the kind of nuances, the turns of phrases all these things and adopt it. And I, I, I'm starting to get from the, the people that I speak with who have that kind of upbringing where they're all over the place. You know, we, we throw around the world third culture kids or TCKs. They seem to have this ability more than anyone mm. is to be able to go into a place. They're like subversives. That's what you are. You're all subversives. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I really like it. And, 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 you know, as I've talked about on this show with other people and just in soliloquies, you know, the, the population of people who are in the situation that you were in when you grew up, uh, that is growing up as TCKs or just growing up or coming of age or matriculating outside their home cultures, the number of these people is, these people is exploding. So this is kind of a phenomenon that's going to yeah. be more common. And what does that mean for the very idea of culture? You know, if, if countries, if, if we as a, as a species are defining our societies through these bordered places, once you have a huge population of people who can easily shift around between those borders and adopt this element here mm. and fall into that way of speaking over there, 
what does that mean about the borders? And do they start to lose their importance? Who knows? We don't know. This is just happening, right? So your experience to me is very instructive on what that can look like and what it will look like. Yeah, I I mean, I guess so. And I think there's, uh, it really highlights to me that A, places and people aren't necessarily as different as we think they are, which is kind of something I've come to terms with over and over again. And B, that we wouldn't be able to live as these uh, isolated nations. And so the reiteration of that again and again to me is, is something that's, that's interesting. And, you know, sometimes I, I am envious of people who have very strong national identities and are really tied to, you know, land and, and, and the identity that, that provides them. But I, I really, it does, it just doesn't resonate with me. I don't understand it, but I, I'm sometimes envious just for what it gives them. Um, where I'm always thinking, well, where is home? You know, they have a very clear sense of it. But I think on the other hand, or rather on the other side of it, I have a perspective that, or, and a lot of most people who've moved around are able to genuinely see life from different perspectives because you had to, when you live in a place, you have to see the world through those people's eyes in order to understand how the place works. Now, this kind of leads into the project you're working on. This is the uh, border dinners. Do I have that name correct? So can you talk a little bit about that and how you're, you're kind of exploring these concepts and these ideas through that project? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the border dinners are one of, uh, three sets of dinners under what I call third culture cooks. And the idea of third culture cooks is, you know, precisely what you alluded to around being a third culture kid to bring that together with sort of my own love of, of food and cooking. And, uh, Bordered is a collection that sort of does two things that are really important to me. Firstly, it brings awareness to a conflict, a geographical political conflict through food and stories rather than through facts, figures and uh, flashing news bulletins. And secondly, it brings people around a table for a delicious meal of foods that they may or may not have had before um, from different parts of different parts of the world and different regions within those different parts of the world and gives them an opportunity to taste those foods in the context that either they were prepared or in the context that they were conceptualized if it was something that was a result of you know migration or war or what have you um but but really trying to dissect so a a big pet peeve of mine is when you go to you know a Lebanese restaurant somewhere in the world. And for some reason of all Middle Eastern countries, you have the most Lebanese restaurants in other places and they'll have items on, on their menu that is, that are not necessarily Lebanese or you'll go to an Indian restaurant and it's uh, most of them traditionally. Now there's a sort of explosion and I'd say in the last sort of five to six years of regional cuisines, Indian regional cuisines in other parts of the world as well. But for the most part, it would be sort of this, generic North Indian food that wasn't really even true to the people of North India. It was just sort of restaurant food. And it was, it's, it was, you know, sort Isn't of entirely its own thing. In, uh, um, in the UK is basically a British dish. Yeah. Well, that's just it. Right. And so it was all these like permutation combinations of onions, tomatoes, ginger, and garlic that were just fairly easy to prepare and easy to preserve and became restaurant food over time. And while they are, while you would find them, 
in North India, it A, doesn't characterize all of even North India, forget the rest of the country. B, there is no such thing as curry. And C, um, wait just, there wait is, just a minute you know, there. There's such an incredible There's diversity. no such thing as curry? <laughs> you, you, you can't just gloss over that. You are dropping a bombshell and changing my life. <laughs> Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, but also you're welcome. It's, it's one of my like biggest sort of, um, like, no, there, it doesn't mean anything. So curry is essentially, I mean, the closest translation might be soup, not necessarily that it means soup, but in that soup denotes a texture and a consistency, but it doesn't mean you know, you could have a really light soup, you could have a really heavy soup, it could be anything. And all that curry denotes is that there's a little bit of liquid around whatever vegetable or meat you're preparing. Like it doesn't actually, it doesn't mean anything. So nobody in India would say, oh, we're going to have, we're going out for a curry. Like it just, it doesn't mean anything. That that would be like saying, oh, we're going out for a soup. You know, it's like as generic as that. Like it doesn't lend itself to any flavor profiles. It doesn't like tell you what kind of Indian cuisine you're, you might be having. You could literally have anything under the sun and it could be Wow, the, the earth has shifted on its axis. I've learned something <laughs> which I always appreciate, but I feel like everything I've known up until now has basically been a lie. So um, I'm just going to sit with that and <laughs> I'm going to try to recover. <laughs> and, and I'm going to and I'm going to apologize for interrupting with your explanation, but please continue while I, oh my God, deal with this new reality. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And so, I mean, I think that was, that was kind of uh, what I was saying is that, you know, that food has been, it's traveled with people, but it's not necessarily always retained its most, its most authentic form. And to some degree, that's kind of how food evolves, right? Like you, you kind of evolve it to the palate. But I just have a bit of a, a bit of a bee in my bonnet, I guess, about people calling food things that it's, it's not or saying something is from a region that it's not. It's just one of those things that I don't quite understand why, because I think it leads to, uh, I think it just leads to like further misinformation or it leads to people thinking they know a lot about a culture or cuisine, um, when actually what they've been presented has been a fairly watered down version of, of what that may be. So that's kind of where the idea of bordered came from. And the idea is that it's sort of conflicted and familiar because as humans, we traditionally ate the food that, you know, grew on the land around us. So it makes sense, therefore, that along a border, both the soil and the food are shared. And a border is also where much of history occurs, but people are cut off from each other or drawn to one another based on how based on what happened at that border. Um, and so the dinners celebrate the similarities and the differences by eating across borders and across the culture that, you know, lies across that border. And even if there are different nationalities, whether it's, you know, Indian and Pakistani or Palestinian and Jordanian or Palestinian and Israeli, whether the nationalities are different, often the cultures and the foods share share a lot at their in in their ingredients and preparation, owing to the fact that the land is the same. And the identity to food, as you know, everyone sort of, I think, knows is, is just so strong. We all have our comfort foods. We all have foods that we turn to. We all have foods that we've eaten since we were young that are foods for our good times and foods for our bad times. You know, one of the great things about living in Beijing is that we have this wonderful collection of restaurants. The food here is incredible. And it's not just the Chinese food. I mean, we have great food from around the world because we have a collection of embassies here and we have such a uh, huge population of international people. And 
there is a great Israeli restaurant in kind of the expat neighborhood, the main expat neighborhood where the embassies are. And then within a half a block, there's, well, it used to be an Iranian place, um, but there is basically another Middle Eastern place. And then a couple of blocks away, there's another great Lebanese place. And the menus are so similar. You know, it's, it's a lot of the same food, a lot of the same dishes. There might be slight variations on how they cook it, but the yeah. food is so the same. What you're saying is it makes so much sense, you know, and then you kind of, when you think about it as a quote border dinner, the idea that you can draw a line on a map and somehow delineate between what people are eating, it just in a, in a given region, especially one so small, it really just makes no sense. Of course, everyone is going to eat the same stuff. They've always mm -hmm. been eating it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you look at Israel, for example, Israeli food today is very different to what Israeli food was when Israel, the state was formed in the late 1940s, because when the state was formed, a lot of Israeli food came or, you know, was Jewish food. And a lot of Jewish food was a result of where people were migrating from, and also a result of them migrating from wartime conditions. So it was food that was hardy, it was food that was cheap to prepare, and it was food that would last them a long time, because those are things that are important at wartime. But then because they had migrated to a land and, and people were already on this land where the produce lent itself to a different type of cuisine, over time, that's changed dramatically. And today, when you walk into an Israeli cafe, you'll find a shakshuk and you'll find a falafel and you'll find a hummus, which, you know, that wouldn't have been characterized as Israeli food in the 19. You know, of course. 30s, now, I know because we talked about this a little bit before, I know you kind of steer clear of the, the, the geopolitical specifics of these dinner, you know, when you do these dinners and you kind of talk about mm -hmm. the broad strokes of history, even if it's recent history. The dinner that I heard about when I heard your story on the radio was a Punjabi dinner, and that's where you are now. How did that go over or how do you feel about addressing that, you know, the issues surrounding the Punjabi region when you're doing that? I mean, especially in India, what was the response that you got? So that particular dinner is a very interesting one for me. It's, it's a very personal exploration as three of my four grandparents came over from Lahore, that's now in Pakistan, to Delhi during the time of partition and the conflict that I look at through that dinner is the 1947 partition and the, the sort of massacre and split of the province during, during those years. So you can say, you know, my family's modern history has very much been shaped by the 1947 partition as well as, as well as with millions of other Indians and Pakistanis. And then growing up, some of my closest friends in my teenagers, I alluded earlier to the fact that it became more sort of culturally homogenous as I got older in the Middle East. Um, and some of my closest friends were Pakistani, but also Punjabi. And I always wondered sort of, how does this work? Like, why are we, we're, we speak the same language. Our grandparents are, you know, look and feel very similar in that they all speak Punjabi and they all went to sort of similar convent schools under the time of the British Raj. And there were, there were all these, you know, we could make a lot of assumptions about one another's lives based on our history, but yet, yet we were different. We were Indian and they're Pakistani or, and so what did it mean? Like, what did it mean to be Punjabi? And then as I grew older and I began, I began hearing these stories of 1947, I just, I've had this sort of insatiable thirst to learn more. And I very distinctly remember in year nine, learning about World War II in, as I mentioned, I was in a British school. So learning about World War II for, you know, the seventh or eighth time in my life, there was 
this little paragraph about Gandhi in our textbook. And I, I can still see it on the side of the page. And it was like, you know, one, if a page has been split into, into four columns, it was about nine or 10 lines in one of the columns. So really, really small. And I'll quite bet it small. didn't say anything about the and famine either. Going home and saying, oh no, it just, it literally referred to Gandhi, the salt march, his rebellion, and uh, I think like a sentence about his relationship with Winston Churchill. And that is, I think, what really sparked it because up until that point, I knew that all of my grandparents had migrated from Pakistan and I knew these things, but I'd sort of known them in the recesses of my mind. I hadn't, I'd never consciously put any energy towards them. And um, that sort of sparked something in me where I went back and I just started voraciously collecting stories from family and have, I think, since then been quite obsessed with understanding what partition meant, you know, for Punjabis and, and uh, for my family specifically. And then at this dinner, um, I've done this, so I've done this dinner once before in London and also in Canada. And the first time I did it in London, actually, I had a very interesting experience where, because it was publicly sold tickets, and I don't think this is something, you know, for example, I'd be able to replicate in when I'm in India, I had people on the table from both sides of the border. And I was actually quite nervous because I try very hard to keep my, my information as objective as possible and, you know, be very factual when I'm presenting facts and not allow the facts to be you know, when you're talking about culture and you're talking about food, it's a little bit more romantic. It's a little bit more, there's a little bit more leeway and it's, and, and you're pointing, not pointing fewer fingers is maybe the wrong thing to say, but you're, you're, um, you're not presenting information that can be, that can incriminate in any way or that can offend in any way as far as, as far as I think. But in that dinner, I just thought, but you are Indian. Like, can you really as an individual steer clear of your, of your biases? And so that for me was a very interesting experience. And it was very different to hosting the dinner in India where around, you know, a similar looking table of uh, people of a similar profile in terms of age and education, six out of 12 people around the table had had the experience of their grandparents coming over from Pakistan, whether they were Punjabi, Gujarati, Sindhi, you know, across various communities. And so that was actually, I'd say, where the dinner in London was sort of a dinner of exploration and a dinner of different perspectives, truly different perspectives of people who would never have naturally seen themselves around the same table. The dinner in India was, I think, more of a bonding experience for people who were also strangers before they came over because it gave space um, for people to talk about their stories and the stories resonated with everybody around the table because such a high percentage of people had faced those stories in their own family. So it was very interesting to see two equally positive, I would say, but very, very different responses to the same menu and the same That's really topic interesting. and the same material. Actually, it's more interesting. It, it's really powerful. And I have to say, I, I, you know, when I heard about your dinners, it really struck a chord with me. And the way you described it, especially at the start about introducing people to, you know, to good food, that's a fantastic hook, especially for people like me. I love to eat. And <laughs> it's a great way to get people around a table <laughs> and to kind of hit them in the face with, Maybe hit him in the face is the wrong word, but maybe hit him in the mouth with the fact that, hey, man, you know, everyone's got to eat. And no matter where you live, no matter what the politics are, you're all eating pretty much the same stuff if you're in a certain region. And if that is so similar, why does everything else have to be so complicated around it? You really break it down to the very basic element. You're all going to eat. You're all eating the same stuff. So why does everything else have to be so weird? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, why... 
does it have to be different? And also just, I think it, it puts a bit of a mirror to me at least, and, and hopefully to diners where it's like, okay, well, if so much of this culture and this food resonates with me, you know, whether I'm talking about something that in the instance of Punjab, okay, it's something very personal to me, but I do menus that I don't have a cultural connection to in any way, shape or form. And equally, those force me to hold this mirror up to myself that say, okay, so why is this foreign if so much of it resonates? And is the conceptualization of foreign positive? Is it negative? Is it neutral in my mind? Like, how do I think about that? And I think that's more important to me. And, you know, I think in India, one of the things that I've noticed during the dinners here is it's kind of the the biggest fry in South Asia, right? Like there, it, it is the biggest country. And at some point, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, were all one landmass. And so while the cultures are going to be different, because that's just what the subcontinent lent itself to, they're not chalk and cheese. Like they, there are elements of similarity. And so I think oftentimes in India, we fall into the trap of making broader assumptions about other cultures, thinking that, oh, well, we have it all in India. And then the rest are sort of these cultural offshoots that are that are a replication of at least one culture that exists in India. And so there, it's been quite interesting to kind of look at where these cultures uh, have varied and, you know, where their histories have actually been different. Because when even when it was the subcontinent en masse, the history of each region was still unique to that region. And so now that there's a national border, it's become even further removed from, you know, the rest of the landmass. And so it's developed in a different way. And so that's been an interesting assumption to challenge. So um, I know that we've talked a little bit about this offline and we don't want to give too much away, but I'm curious as to what other kind of regions that you want to focus on with these dinners. How, how do you think about approaching a dinner and what regions do you see as ones you want to do a dinner for, you know, maybe the first handful that you're thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I'll maybe uh, take those questions as, as in two separate parts. So in terms of, you know, how the dinners come about, I have a few criteria that I've developed over the last year and a half or so that really make a dinner complete. And I think to my eyes, it needs that level of research and validation before I can start, you know, presenting things to the world. And a lot of it is understanding the flavors of a cuisine. Um, so that is, you know, really backbreaking research. You got to get the flavor the and you got to get the flavor. The <laughs> you got to figure it all out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I think there's a really powerful there's something really powerful about understanding the palate of a certain part of the world. And that's something that I'm really grateful to, you know, um, world cities like, like a London or a Toronto, where you're able to really get into communities um, and buy ingredients that are, you know, maybe not the full gamut of what's indigenous to them, but, but a much larger variety than you might in other parts of the world. Um, but so I'm really thankful for that because, you know, it, it took a while to research the cuisines that I started out with. And it took me a while to, you know, there's some that your palate is more naturally aligned to based on your life experience. And there are some that 
it took me a little bit longer to understand I gotta say, um, the conceptualization of I have to say, just interject for a moment, so on. I totally so relate the- to that because I grew up Boston Irish Catholic where spicy is Worcestershire yeah. sauce or A1 sauce. Everything is boiled. I came right. to China. Let me tell you right. something. I couldn't eat anything that was remotely spicy for about two years, and I blame my mother. But after a couple of years... <laughs> Man, I love spicy food now. I mean, my, thank God my wife and she loves it too. And we go out, I, we, you know, we had a friend, a couple, we've had friends visit. And yeah. I remember we took one friend out to this restaurant. Actually, we went to this restaurant uh, again this mm-hmm. past weekend because we love it. We haven't been in a while. It's Yunnan food. And Yunnan food has a very interesting kick because it's down near the border mm-hmm. of like Vietnam and Thailand. So their spiciness is, it's got that kind of sharp spiciness like Thai food, Thai spice, but it is still Chinese. So it's also very flavorful and not painful. So we brought some friends to uh, this restaurant we love and mm-hmm. we got, you know, we ordered this dish. It's uh, basically tofu skin and mint mixed with some spice with some spices and it's uh, a wonderful dish we love it it's sweet and spicy but it's not that spicy and a friend sat down who's visiting from the u.s she says is this spicy we're like oh no this is a very mild dish <laughs> man she could she could not do bites of it and i felt so bad for her because it wasn't until after she had done that that i'd realized oh my god I've been eating this for like three years now. And to me, I've got this tolerance and I forgot my own origin story, which is that I came from this place that had a very specific mm-hmm. palate and I had to beat right. my palate into submission to develop yeah. a new one. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's really powerful stuff. And you know, it's spicy and mild. It's things like, um, how, how salt is used. It's how much food is cooked. It's, you know, just, the conceptualizations of these things are so different. So in Indian food, we like, we really cook our food. Like we use heat in very, very um, aggressive ways almost to really cook food. And then in say, in, in say like a lot of Middle Eastern food, they use preservation and, and all, all cuisines have elements of these things, but you know, they use preservation much more heavily and it makes sense. And, you know, based on the climate and the geography, um, and then spice and other, you know, whether in Chinese, certain parts, certain regions of Chinese food or in South Asian food or Eastern European food to some of it, um, Central Asian sort of that part, it's used, they're used very differently and they may be heavier mild. And a lot of that has to do with the nature and the geography and the uh, the soil and, and you know all of that kind of stuff and it's not it's the uh, the coincidences of maybe the first time a recipe was made might be might be a coincidence but it's no coincidence that and you use and you have to kind of figure of all this out when you're doing these dinners it's tough work it's tough work I feel bad for you yeah absolutely so a lot of it has been. <laughs> It's actually super fun. And that's kind of why I chose to do it is because I'm, when I decided I wanted to do this, I was like, okay, what I don't want to do is a food and recipe blog, because I think there are people who are far more qualified than me, frankly, to do those. And there are so many of them and they're so great that I just didn't feel like it was, I didn't feel like it was a need. Um, And so I thought, okay, well then what do I want to do? I feel like I have something to say and something to add to the space and it was bringing together this interest in history and food and, and origin, you know, whether it's words, I'm always interested in the origin of words and I'm always interested in the origin of, of foods and of music. And I, I just like, I like getting to the root of things that it, you know, it, 
God knows if it's a reflection of not being able to get to the root of my own identity or just not, you know, trying to answer the question in other ways. But um, it's just something that's always fascinated me. And so it was, for me, almost sort of natural that like, okay, yeah, this is this is how we'll bring it together. There has to be an element of history so can you, um, attached to this. So do you want to unveil maybe a couple of regions that you're thinking about doing or that you have kind of mapped out in your mind? Like what, what, what borders do you want to kind of tackle? Sure. Yes. Sorry. I didn't answer that part of your question in all my talking. So some of the ones that I have started with, I mentioned Punjab, which is geographically today, India, Pakistan, but really looking at the province of Punjab, looking at the province of Kashmir, which is again today, India, Pakistan, but Punjab and Kashmir are, you know, quite different to one another. And then again, looking at India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, this time looking at the province of Bengal and uh, the food there. Um, looking then at also at the south of the subcontinent, so looking at the Sri Lankan civil war, and that's looking specifically at the Tamil and the Sinhalese community, but also the Malay and the Burger and all the other communities that, that make up that incredibly diverse island and how that's interacted with some of the countries around it, whether it's been through colonization, whether it's been through migration, whether it's been through uh, trade and how that's had an impact on the cuisine there um, and in other places as well. I then also have borders that are, so Israel-Palestine is, is one that I do and quite enjoy doing. So another one that I do is Tibet. And so that's looking at India, China, and Tibet. And that also looks at the Chinese community in Calcutta and the origins of the Indian Chinese, the Indian Chinese community, which is the Hakka community that migrated here a few years ago. So that one's a little bit broader in that it's not one specific, well, it is one specific geographic border, but it's a considerably longer one than, than most of the other ones. And then I look at US-Mexico is another one of the borders that I've looked at as well. And these are the ones that I have sort of fully developed. There's about 30 other borders that I'm currently going in order down the list to do the research on. And some of it is constrained by the ingredients that I may have access to. Um, well, but, we've got what, 190 uh, sort of something countries in the I world, you know, how many of them but each other. There's limitless, you know, we could do the math maybe, but math is not involved in this podcast. <laughs> we won't. So we've got... Mm, Countless permutations, and I have to say, it makes my mouth water thinking about it. And I really, really look forward to maybe one day getting the chance to sink my teeth into one of your dinners because they sound delicious, both in the food and just in the whole experience, just the, the concept of sitting down and immersing yourself and learning about a culture through eating a dinner like that. I really appreciate what you're doing, and I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And it was really fun to talk through it and uh, to get into the conversation. Well, there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. My first attempt at a remote interview, I think it went okay. A couple of little bits where the timing was a little off. I'll get better at that as I go along. If you have any comments on this episode or suggestions for future topics or even someone that you'd like to hear interviewed, please reach out and let me know. You can actually get in touch with me by email now. I'm at mike.shaw at migrationmedia.net. You can also leave a comment on our Twitter page. It's at migrationmedia underscore. Please don't forget to leave us a like and a review on iTunes. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Music.